Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning that we can worship you as your people. We thank you that we can celebrate your saving work in the lives of Fallon and Jim. And we pray, God, that in your mercy you would truly bless them this morning as they go through the waters of baptism. We thank you, Lord, that you have given us these two, um, these two symbols, these two sacraments that you've given to your church, baptism and the Lord's Supper, by which we are able to visibly see deep spiritual truths. And we pray, Lord, that as we look to your word now to, to understand these two sacraments, sacraments better, we pray that by your spirit you would guide us, you would lead us according to your word, you would enlighten our minds, and that, Lord, you would deepen our delight in you in light of these truths. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I've called today um, Sacrament Sunday or Ordinance Sunday. A sacrament has a little bit better ring. Um, and the reason I've called it that today is because today we're going to be participating in the two sacraments or the two ordinances that the Lord gave to his church. Baptism and the Eucharist, that is the, the table of thanksgiving, or as many know it, the Lord's Supper. Jesus instituted both of these sacraments. In Matthew 28, verses 18 to 20, Jesus came and said to his disciples, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them into the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So Jesus commissioned the apostles, and by extension, the church, to go and make disciples, and to do this by baptizing them into the name of the triune God, and to teach them, of course, all that Christ commanded. Not only that, in Matthew 26, Jesus implemented the Lord's Supper. Now, as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. So these two sacraments were instituted by Jesus Christ for the sake of the church of Jesus Christ. And all I really want to do this morning is give a little teaching on the significance of baptism and the Lord's Supper. Because I think the better we understand these two things, the more meaningful and enriching they will be when we actually participate in them. Now, I just want to say that I am just touching the surface of these two sacraments, but I hope by even touching the surface, it will only further enrich our worship. So first, I want to look at baptism, and then we'll look at the Lord's Supper. So baptism. What is baptism? Here's a very simple definition that I would give to define baptism. Now, this definition isn't sufficient to explain everything about baptism, but it's a beginning point. So here's my definition. Baptism is an initiatory rite by which a repentant sinner visibly expresses their faith in Jesus Christ 
and by which God, by the Holy Spirit, affirms to the baptized the blessings of salvation. So let me repeat that. Baptism is an initiatory rite by which a repentant sinner visibly expresses their faith in Jesus Christ and by which God, by the Holy Spirit, affirms to the baptized the blessings of salvation. Now you'll see there that there's two aspects to this definition. One aspect addresses what the individual is doing when they get baptized. The other aspect is what God is doing in baptism. So first, what is the individual doing when they are baptized? And that's the first part of the definition. Baptism is an initiatory rite by which a repentant sinner visibly expresses their faith in Jesus Christ. In other words, baptism is the visible means by which someone says yes to Jesus Christ. Faith, which saves, is an internal, invisible reality. And baptism makes that invisible, internal reality visible. In other words, you repent and believe in Jesus Christ and you express that, you reveal that through the waters of baptism. So in Acts chapter 2, uh, the Apostle Peter is preaching to uh, many of the Jewish people in Jerusalem. And when they hear the preaching and, and he's finished preaching, this is what we read. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent, that is repent and believe, and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. You see here that faith and baptism are so interconnected, they're so related, that all the blessings of grace, all the blessings of salvation that are tied to faith, forgiveness of sins, union with Christ, um, washing away of sin, they are also all tied to baptism in the New Testament. Faith and baptism are so interconnected, so related, that the language of salvation can be ascribed to both faith and baptism. Listen to Dr. Fowler. For Paul, faith and baptism are like two sides of a coin, distinct but never disconnected, both looking to Christ for the benefits of salvation, the one as attitude and the other as act. Or you can compare it, and I mean this respectfully, to the idea of love and sex within covenant marriage. Love is that internal desire that is expressed through the physical act of intercourse between a husband and a wife. And you could say that love is incomplete until it expresses itself physically and visibly. There's similarities there with baptism. Faith is the internal expression of our salvation, and baptism is the external expression of our salvation. Now that leads to an important question. If all the language of salvation is used for both faith and baptism, does it mean that baptism is necessary to be saved? Well, the answer is quite simple, and it's no. We can think of several examples in the scripture. The one most obvious is the thief on the cross. 
But I think that's the wrong question to ask. I don't think the right question to ask is, is baptism necessary to be saved? I think the right question is, as Dr. Fowler states, how does God intend baptism to function? And the answer of the biblical text is that God intends it to serve as a defining moment of conversion, the way in which the penitent sinner formally says yes to the gospel and receives the salvation offered by God through Christ. The normative practice in the New Testament is faith visibly expressed in baptism in such a way that the Apostle Peter can say things like, be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. See, I actually think myself and other pastors have failed in preaching the gospel by only calling people to repent and believe in Jesus Christ. I think the gospel call is more biblically accurate when it is calling people to repent and believe the gospel and be baptized for the forgiveness of sins, not because baptism saves you, but because baptism is the visible way in which you say yes to Jesus Christ. So that's what the individual is doing in baptism. They are expressing their faith in Jesus Christ, placing themselves under his lordship. They are visibly saying yes to Jesus. But what is God doing in baptism? And that leads to the second half of the definition and by which God, by the Holy Spirit, affirms to the baptized the blessings of salvation. You see, we Baptists tend to focus on what the person being baptized is doing, which is a good thing. But we often don't think about what God is doing in baptism. God the Father, by the Holy Spirit, through the waters of baptism, is affirming to the recipient of baptism all the blessings of salvation given to him through the death and resurrection of Christ. Let me say that again. God the Father, by the Holy Spirit, through the waters of baptism, is confirming to the recipient of baptism all the blessings of salvation given to him through the death and resurrection of Christ. In other words, if baptism is the visible way in which we say yes to Jesus, we can also say that baptism is the visible way in which God, by the Spirit, says yes to us. That is, he confirms upon the heart of the baptized that they indeed belong to him and have had their sins forgiven and washed away, that they are indeed children of God. As St. Basil states, the water furnishes the image of death just as the body is received in burial. But the Spirit infuses life-giving power, renewing our souls from the death of sin to the original life. Thus, if there is some grace in the water, it is not from the nature of the water, but from the presence of the Spirit. In other words, th there's nothing magical about the water or the ritual itself. It's just water. The water doesn't save you. But God has chosen to bless his people through certain visible means. And one of those means is baptism. It's a means of grace for the one who goes through the waters with faith. Now, I don't have time to unpack this idea through the scriptures. That's a, a teaching in and of itself. But, 
But let me just give you a simple example, but it won't be adequate enough. The baptism of Jesus, what happens? The Spirit descends on him like a dove, and a voice from heaven declares, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. In other words, through Jesus' baptism, the Father, by the Spirit, affirms his Son. Now, we know that that is a unique situation. None of us are the beloved Son of God. But I think the idea is also true for those who, by faith, experience baptism. God in his mercy has given a visible act by which he affirms through the spirit that the person being baptized belongs to him. Think about it this way. We believe that when the word of God is preached faithfully, that the Holy Spirit takes the word and bestows grace upon those who have faith, sanctifying grace, affirming grace, grace that edifies, convicts, and encourages But to the one who doesn't have faith, my preaching is just a passionate lecture. But to the one who does have faith, the preaching of God's word becomes a means by which they experience the grace of God. It's an ordinary means of grace, and baptism fits into that same category. See, I think Fowler sums it up well when he says, It is God who saves. Neither faith nor baptism is a savior. God is the savior, and faith and baptism are the instruments by which God makes salvation real in our experience. So that's my short little definition. Baptism is an initiatory rite by which a repentant sinner expresses their faith in Jesus Christ and by which, and, and by which God, by the Holy Spirit, affirms to the baptized the blessings of salvation. But I also want to just briefly look at what does baptism symbolize? What does it represent? There are three things that I want us to look at. This is not exhaustive, but there are three things the Bible speaks to when it talks about what baptism symbolizes. And I've already alluded to one of them. The first is this, identification with Jesus Christ. When one goes into the water and is immersed under the water and comes back out, that is an act by which they are, they are identifying with Jesus Christ. Romans 6, 3-5, Paul says this, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. So we are baptized into Christ Jesus. We are buried with Christ into death. And when we come up out of the water, we are brought to new life in Christ. We are identifying with Jesus Christ. Over and over again in the book of Acts, when someone is baptized, it's repeated that they are being baptized into the name, into the name of Christ. Baptism is a means of identifying with Christ, saying, He is my life, He is my Lord. As Hammett states, into the name was a technical term indicating a transference of ownership. Thus, in baptism, one openly confessed 
that he belonged to Jesus. That is, he was henceforth to be identified with Jesus. Not only that, baptism represents the idea of purification. In Acts chapter 22, the Apostle Paul is is teaching or he's, he's speaking to the Jewish people about his conversion and his encounter with the living Christ. And in verse 16, he, he tells the people what Ananias said to him. And, it, and this is what we read. And now why do you wait, Paul? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. Baptism is, a, baptism is this picture of purification. It's having your, your sins washed away. Just as, as Romans 6, 3 to 5 speaks to that you are brought to death, that is you are buried with Christ, your old sinful self is put to death in the tomb, and then you come out, out of the grave to newness of life, and now you walk by the Spirit. It is a purif- purifying act that it represents. Not only that, it represents the idea of incorporation. Baptism is the initiation rite into the covenant community of Christ, the church. It is the means by which we enter into the covenant community, whereas the the Eucharist, the Lord's Supper, is the means by which we renew and confirm that we are in the covenant community. See, identification with Christ means identification with his people. You cannot identify with Jesus Christ if you are unwilling to identify with his people. Acts 2.41 So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Added to what? Added to the church of Jesus Christ, the body of Christ. In Ephesians 4, 4 4-6, Paul says this, There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. One God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Now in Ephesians 4, the context is is unity in Christ. And Paul's saying that, that all of us have one faith. We have all believed in Jesus Christ, in the one Lord. But we have also all been baptized into that name. And therefore we have all been baptized into the new covenant community. This is partly the grounds for your unity and continual pursuit of unity. Now, this is not exhaustive, but baptism signifies identification, purification, and incorporation. So that's baptism. What about the Lord's Supper, the Eucharist? What does the Bible teach about that? I want to do something very similar to how we looked at baptism. First, I want to ask, what are we doing when we partake of the Lord's Supper together? And then secondly, what is God doing in the Lord's Supper? So first, what are we doing when we partake of the Eucharist together? Well, I think a good word to describe what we're doing in the Eucharist is the word renewal. Renewal. Baptism is the right of salvation or the right of justification. And the Eucharist, you could say, is the rite of sanctification. But here's the beautiful thing. The Eucharist draws our attention back to our salvation in Christ as a means by which we are sanctified. Because the gospel not only saves, but it also sanctifies. 
Listen to how Hammett puts it. Baptism symbolizes the transformation affected by the gospel. It is thus the ordinance symbolizing our commitment to Christ, our new birth and justification. The Lord's Supper proclaims the gospel message of Christ's death as the sustenance of the Christian life. The very elements of bread and wine speak of nourishment and refreshment. Thus, the Lord's Supper is the ordinance of ongoing sanctification or the continual renewal and furthering of that initial commitment to Jesus. So when we come to the Eucharist, we're participating in an act of renewal. And the question is how? Well, first, we renew our devotion and commitment to Jesus. Baptism is that initial commitment, whereas the Eucharist is the means by which we renew our commitment. In 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-three to 24, the Apostle Paul says this, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me, of me. It's an act by which we remember Christ. We draw our attention upon Christ. That word remember is so much more than simply a mere recollection. As Hammett states, it, it is recalling an event with such vividness and power that it affects the present, bringing all the benefits of Christ's death to bear, remembering that his body was broken for you. See, as we take time to remember what Christ did for us through his death and resurrection, we renew our love, our commitment, and our worship and devotion to Jesus. So we renew our devotion to Christ, but we also renew our commitment and devotion to the body of Christ, the church, to one another. Remember, baptism is the initial way we commit to Christ and his people, the church. And the Eucharist is the way in which we partly renew that commitment. In 1 Corinthians 10, 16 to 17, Paul here is addressing the issue of unity, and he actually uses the Lord's Supper to demonstrate this. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Now this is why in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul rebukes them for coming to the Lord's table in an unworthy manner. And what he means by that is not, you had some struggles this past week with sin. What he's talking about is indifference towards your brothers and sisters. There's division amongst God's people and you're coming to the Lord's table like everything is okay. This is what he says in 1 Corinthians 11, 17 to 22. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you because when you come together, it is not for better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. 
When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or, you to or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. If you think the church in North America is bad, imagine the church in Corinth. Now, Paul rebukes them for this. And then in verses 23 to 26, he restates the words of Christ regarding the Lord's Supper. And then in beginning verse 27, he gives a scathing warning. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-seven to 30, he says this, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner. And when he says unworthy manner there, he's not talking about the fact that you sinned this past week. He is talking about the fact that you are coming to the Lord's table and there is division among you and you are indifferent to your brothers and sisters. So he says, you, you come and um, there eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have even died. So when we come to the Lord's table together, what we are supposed to be doing is renewing our commitment to the Lord and also renewing our commitment to one another, demonstrating our unity in Christ. As Hammett says, the Lord's Supper should be the supreme occasion when the body, the church, renews its love for and unity with one another. And then thirdly, we renew our commitment to proclaim the Lord's death until he returns. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. The Eucharist reminds us that Christ is going to return. And until he returns, we commit ourselves to proclaiming his death to one another, but also to the world who is in such desperate need for the forgiveness of sins and salvation. So these are the three things we're doing when we partake of the Eucharist together. We renew our commitment to Christ. We renew our commitment to one another. We renew our commitment to proclaim his death in light of his coming return. And then finally, I want to ask, what is God doing when we partake of the Eucharist together? So here's the, sim the most simple way that I think I can put it. When we come to the Eucharist by faith, God by his spirit nourishes us spiritually by allowing us to feed on Christ spiritually. So we don't believe that the bread and cup become the literal body and blood of Jesus like our Roman Catholic friends do. But I do believe that we feed upon Christ in a spiritual sense, just as we feed upon Christ when we receive his word by faith. In 1 Corinthians 10, 14 to 21, which I've already partly read, 
Paul is addressing the Gentile believers in Corinth because some of them are going to altars of pagan gods and they are making sacrifices to these pagan gods. And Paul confronts them on this and says, you cannot eat of the Lord's table and also participate in these uh, in these pagan worship practices. And I want you to see the connection he makes between participation in Christ and participation with these pagan gods. This is what he says. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? That word participation is the idea of fellowship. Is it not a fellowship in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Is it not a genuine communion, a, 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 a deep, intimate experience with Christ himself? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No. I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Paul's saying this, you think that you can go to these pagan altars and make sacrifices because they're just a metal idol. But you need to see that when you do this, you are actually participating with demonic realities. You are actually fellowshipping with demons. And in the same way that when you come to the Lord's table, you are fellowshipping, communing with Christ. There is a, a spiritual encounter with Christ by which we are nourished and strengthened spiritually. So just as the manna nourished Israel physically in the wilderness, so Jesus through the Eucharist nourishes us spiritually. Let, let me quote for you John Calvin on this. Let it be regarded as a settled principle that the sacraments have the same office as the word of God to offer and set forth Christ to us, and in him the treasures of heavenly grace. But they avail and profit nothing unless received by faith. See, for some reason, especially today, many Baptists tend to be resistant to this idea. They see the Lord's Supper as just purely memorial. It is an act of remembrance, and that is it. And to be honest with you, our Baptist history doesn't actually agree with that. Let me read to you the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith on the topic of the Lord's Supper. Worthy receivers, that is Christians, worthy receivers outwardly partaking of the visible elements in this ordinance, do then also inwardly by faith really and indeed, yet not carnally and corporately, but spiritually receive and feed upon Christ crucified and all the benefits of his death. The body and blood of Christ 
being then not corporally or carnally, but spiritually present to the faith of believers in that ordinance as the elements themselves are to their outward senses. So when we come to the Eucharist, we are renewing our commitment to Jesus. We are renewing our commitment to one another. We are renewing our commitment and proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. But we also come to feed spiritually upon Christ and so be nourished by Christ. Now I want to briefly address those of you who are here who do not know Jesus. I want you to understand that baptism and the Lord's Supper are two symbols that represent the greatest act in history, the greatest loving act in history, by which God sent forth his beloved son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to live a life that we could not live and to die a death we could not bear. On that cross, Jesus Christ took upon himself the sin of the whole world. He was crushed by the judgment of God for our sins. He paid the penalty for our sins, and three days later, he rose from the dead, declaring himself to be the Lord and the King of all. And he calls every human being, he calls every human being to repent and believe upon him for the forgiveness of sins, to bow your knee to the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He died so that you might have everlasting life. And so I encourage you, I implore you this morning, bow your knee to the risen Christ. He is worthy of your allegiance. He died for your sins Turn to him and trust in him. Brothers and sisters, baptism and the Eucharist are sacred spiritual acts given to us by Christ himself for our benefit. And today we're going to have the joy of witnessing two baptisms and participating in the Eucharist together. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for your grace in not only giving us Christ and not only giving us your word, but also giving us these two sacraments, these two visible acts by which we are reminded of deep spiritual truths. And Lord, we pray that this morning that we would truly behold your grace and your goodness as we witness two baptisms and also as we come to your table this morning. We pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen.